and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is a podcast all about board game design for people who want to design board games, people who want to learn about designing board games, and for people who don't want to learn about designing board games and have clicked on the wrong podcast. <laughs> if you're in that third group, welcome. Hopefully you stick around and learn about the stuff that you really don't want to learn about. AJ, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about fixing BGG and rethinking genres. But first, we're going to follow up from our on-ramping episode. Peter, do you have any uh, follow-up for that? No, but I do have some follow-up from our bonus episode. Two small things. One is that I said we modeled all of the art in Lady the Tiger off the short story. Not true. Zero <laughs> percent true. The, uh, the, the story is about a kingdom and it has very specific characters. And the art is about a whole bevy of ladies and tigers that have absolutely nothing to do with the story. If anything, the art was modeled off the title solely and exclusively so that that part was definitely wrong <laughs> did you have any follow-up from our bonus episode i did yes since we released it we had a few listeners write in with suggestions Ooh, too late but still good to hear yeah. <laughs> so joffrey writes in robotopia revolt you know with volt emphasized there and we we talked about this one previously to recording this because i just thought it was i thought it was an excellent name for a second edition or for an expansion for robotopia because re heavily implies we're coming back to this uh, but i thought it was a pretty good name i like it next up is resourceful robots submitted by carl resourceful robots is is not bad it does like capture the kind of tone of the game but it feels a little more hopeful than I want. <laughs> Resourceful robots to me is like, they're stuck on an island, but they're going to work together to get off the island, whereas there's people competing to take over a city. See, it's interesting. When we talked about this earlier, you said that you thought it was a little bit more dry, like it didn't quite have the playfulness. Interesting, yeah. I guess my moods and opinions are, are whims <laughs> on the wind. I'm trying to think. You know what? It might be hearing it read out loud versus seeing it written down. Mm, that's fair. Because Resolve Robots, when I hear it, is much more playful than when I read it. I must have not gotten the same image in my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, I, I think it's got the playfulness. The big issue for me is it feels like it's more like the game is going to be more granular than it is. Resourceful Robots doesn't make me feel about like a large group of robots coming together for something. It feels like there's going to be crafting systems or like really scrappy underdog sort of things. Like you're going to be playing as... As a robot with yeah. other robots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, exact, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was like, they're, they're on an island and they've got to work together to get, mm -hmm. to get away from the island. Whereas Robotopia gives you the feel that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of them. It's like a civilization or, or a city or something. Yeah, a big part of the game is this ebb and flow of the robots. And I think I think Robotopia captures that in a way that resourceful robots doesn't in the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so many factors when it comes up to coming with a name. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And then Sam writes in, this one's a little bit of an explanation here. What if you went for a company name instead of a city name? Something like Robotanics or Robogenics or Crush Inc. or Robo Crush Inc. I feel like that communicates the theme ideas you're going for, but feels a bit more interesting and original while still having that slightly tongue-in-cheek feel. Thoughts? Yeah, no, that's actually a pretty good call. Mm -hmm. um, I was always imagining a civilization of robots rather than a single company, even when it was in a factory it never occurred to me that yes yeah, someone like some company owned the factory and this is just a in peter's head world building thing which doesn't have to be the way it is but that's why i never thought to go down those lines but no i, th I think that that could have been a good direction to go for sure it's mm -hmm. interesting the thing about that company's name suggestion is that I'm, I'm thinking about the mechanics of the game rather than the world that i built in my head is that the game itself has no financial incentive it has no like making money or yeah, it's interesting. Like, that does make sense, and maybe the game could have been moved in that direction, but mechanically speaking, there's almost a pointlessness to it. Like, you make robots to make more robots to make robots, and eventually, I guess, you fulfill these contracts, but the contracts don't ever leave the factory. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I think if we'd gone the company direction, I think that could work, but we would have had to tweak a large number of mechanics to make it work. Now, having said that, when the game comes out and you play, if, if you play it and you're like, nope, completely disagree with that, let me know, because I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I think there is definitely a world where we, we could have gone down that line and end up with something just as good, but slightly different. All right, so thanks so much for writing in, everyone. Honestly, I love this sort of interplay that we have with our audience. So anytime you have feedback or you have suggestions on anything, feel free to write in. We really like doing this segment. Did you have any other follow-up? I have our first ever game follow-up. So I want to play a little game with you as part of follow-up. Okay, cool. I need two minutes to write the game. Give me a second. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. So this game is very simple. I have made up a list of game names. 
These are not real, real game, real games. From this list, you're going to tell me if this sounds more like a Euro or a Meritrash game. And we're going to go with a very simple, and this actually will lead us into genres quite nicely. Pretend that there's only two genres of games. There's Euros and there's like non-Euros. From the title, does this game sound to you like a Euro or not? Because I have a theory, but I want to, uh, I, I, I want to, I want to test the theory with, with this experiment. Fun. Are you ready? I am. Don't say fun. We're not allowed to have fun yet. There's oh, only one part of the podcast we're allowed to have fun, and we're not up to it. Okay. And by Ameritrash, I mean like anything from Twilight Imperium to Double. You know that that whole range. Cool. Do you know what Double is? Nope. <laughs> uh, uh, spot it. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So Roads of Australia. Roads of Australia definitely sounds like a Euro because it sounds like there's infrastructure. It sounds like. It's going to be about traveling or about resources or something to do with that. I could definitely see it being something more, I don't know, Oregon Trail, where it's like a group traveling along the roads. But to me, like, my instinct is Euro. Hey, break it. Break it does not sound like a Euro. <laughs> Breaking things, causing destruction, all that sort of stuff, that sounds very light and playful and aggressive, potentially. And those are all Ameritrash characteristics. So I'm, I'm worried that I've chosen two extreme ver versions of this, but we're, we're going to keep on going with this list that I've got. Journeys of the Fellowman. What was that one more time? Journeys of the Fellowman. Oh, of fellow men. Got it. I could see this being like a, a victory point driven Euro where it's like you're trying to recreate history, like rebuilding structures or something like that. But to me, it strikes me a little bit more as like, legends or or history or something in i don't know it, it, this one I, I it could really go either way maybe now i'm actually leaning a little bit more to, towards your i'll say euro but I, I could see it going either way for sure elephants elephants makes me think that it's going to be an ameritrash single word simple doesn't have to do with something economic or dry or infrastructure based or resources or colonialism or any of the things i typically associate with euros so to me, when I hear elephants, that makes me think, is it a party game where we blow up balloons and they're the elephants that we're playing with? Or is it like we're stacking elephants? Or to me, that, that sounds not only like an Ameritrash, that sounds like a kid's game or a family game or, a, or like a party game. Like French toast. French toast, that's the sort of feel that I get when you hear elephants. Elephant habitats. That makes me think you're instantly. Because you're creating a habitat for the elephants, maybe a zoo or something, or maybe you're creating some wildlife enclosure. That sounds very Euro-y. Pebble hunt. Pebble hunt. Uh, that does not sound like a Euro. That again sounds more like a kid's game or something. Pebbles. Pebbles also sounds like a kid's game or something very light. Pebbles for me sounds like an abstract first and foremost. But, oh uh... yeah, yeah, good call. That is what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, for sure. But that, that was, wasn't one of the options, so I understand why you didn't go with that. My theory was that as a rule, as, as a genre marker, if you will, Euros are more likely to have nouns as games and like your Ameritrash and your party games are more likely to have verbs as names. Again, it's a very broad rule. I was listening to us talking about why like Rebel wasn't working because it, it didn't match the game. And it occurred to me that Rebel is a very active verb. Whereas like Rebellion, even though it, it's a very active word, it's still a noun and that felt closer. And then... A lot of Euros are obviously city names. So, you know, Istanbul or Birmingham or whatever. Uh, and Robotopia is a city name, felt like a Euro. And partially because there are other city names as Euros, but also because Euros are like these big, broad, system-based nouns. Whereas, uh, you know, attack Birmingham wouldn't wouldn't feel the same. Or, or reconstruct Birmingham, maybe reconstruct Birmingham. But as a rule, I was thinking that, yeah, nouns as Euros and verbs as, as party games and Ameritrash. Interesting. Like, I can think of many counterexamples for both, but you're right, like, off the top of my head, the first, like, large number of games that I could think of did fall into that category. So that might be, if nothing else, an, a useful starting point. Yeah, it's, it's something I'd, I'd love to, uh, if, if anyone wants to do an analysis on the Board Game Geek, <laughs> different <laughs> names, I'll think of it. Anyway, that was my follow-up and our first ever game follow-up for our bonus episode. The episode proper is going to be us talking about currently what is the system or systems that we use for defining genres and what are alternatives or alternative ways of thinking about genres or classifying games. Well, let's start by talking about why we use genres at all. Like, why is genre something that we use as people and why, as a designer, should we be thinking about genre? I think it's a great point to bring up because a lot of times people will be arguing really pedantic points 
And a question that I usually have for people is, what is the value of the answer of the question that you're asking, right? So if someone's like, well, um, abstract strategies cannot have luck, and that, that's like the statement they're making, it's like, well, why? Like, what purpose does it have to separate those two things? And I think, generally speaking, there's two camps for coming up with these different taxonomies, these different sort of classification methods. And I think thing number one is, frankly, just like measuring dicks. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I might have to beep that out. But like people have in mind, this is what I like about this. So this is how I think of this thing. So everyone has to think about this the way that I do. I don't think a lot of people realize that's what they're doing. But I think it really is. I would also lump into this category people who just like to argue. I'm friends with a lawyer and he just loves to argue any point that I make. And you know, not, not even in a, in a toxic way. He's not like challenging me, but he just enjoys bantering. He enjoys thinking about these things, which is fine. That's fine. Yeah, there is value in making someone analyze why they said the thing that they've said. And like, you know, devil advocate obviously has a very negative connotation these days with, with the internet and mm-hmm. being as it is. But there is a value to being like, hey, you just said this thing. Why do you think that? Mm-hmm. Well, doesn't that make this true? Hang on, isn't this a contradiction? Because A, you could be wrong and B, it could help you firm up what you're actually trying to say or why you why you feel the way that you do. Absolutely. So I, I think you're right. If we were to dive in the psychology of it even deeper, which we're not going to do for the whole episode, I promise, <laughs> some people find a great deal of comfort in being able to label stuff. It's extremely comforting to be like, ah, this is how this was defined and this is what it means and it's very clear. And when I see a thing, I can put in this label. And so when something doesn't fit in that box, that is upsetting to them. Like they're not necessarily arguing for the sake of arguing. They are just upset because they had a taxonomy that made sense in their mind and you're coming over and being like no you know nothing is real everything's made up sweep these to the side you can't rely on them anymore and that could be very not damaging but uh disconcerting that could that could yeah. be very disruptive definitely i mean there's there's this concept of cognitive dissonance and cognitive resonance if you show me this game and it fits into my structure of labels and systems then i can understand it really clearly and that's comforting and if you show me a duckbill platypus and you say mammals give live birth and don't lay eggs then i'm like wait how do i how do i deal with this those types of examples are exactly why we always talk about genre markers as opposed to talking about this is rigidly exactly only what this thing will ever be because there's going to be times when something doesn't fit neatly into what what we already think of as that thing and that's okay and that can evolve the genre itself and then what we were saying before so that's point number one is people in that sort of a camp and point number two is just helping people to have conversations. Like, honest to goodness, being able to understand what game you're presenting and being able to find games that they like. If you aren't able to have any degree of confidence in any of these statements, it's very difficult to have conversations with people about games in general. Yeah, I think that's the key thing. And I'd say that's the more important thing. And again, this is why I think genre markers are more useful. Because no one's going to love every abstract game. They're just not. But... If a lot of abstract games all have a lot of similarities and those are things that you enjoy in a game, then you are more likely to enjoy an abstract than something else. So it's almost like a little bit of a built-in hook. I know that I like worker placement games because I can point to a dozen worker placement games that I've played and really, really enjoyed. If you show me a worker placement game, I know that I'm statistically more likely to enjoy it because it will more likely do the things that I like. And that's that's the main thing about genre. If, If we were to compare it to food, I don't like spicy food. And so the whole genre of quote unquote Indian food, as in what, you know, what in America, if you're presented with Indian food, it's going to be very similar to other places that presented with Indian food. I'm less likely to have a good time because they are more likely to have spice. That doesn't mean I'm going to hate every Indian restaurant. That doesn't mean that I'm never going to enjoy a single meal there. That doesn't mean I'm going to love something that isn't Indian, but it's just a nice shorthand of saying, hey, we are doing, we are trying to do some, you know, we're trying to do some of these things that other games have also tried to do. If you liked what those games were trying to do, you're more likely to like this one. It's, it's, I'm using very catch language, but you, you can never be definitive about this. So yeah, genre is, oh man, I liked Four Weddings and Funeral and Notting Hill and uh, Miss Congeniality. And those are all classed as romantic comedies. So I will more likely enjoy Palm Springs and Mickey Blue Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked you this before, and I'm going to ask it again. Now, hopefully you're not going to... Um... It's Peter, AJ. Come on, <laughs> we do this every week. Just learn my name. <laughs> now, hopefully you don't jump too far ahead in this topic based off of this. But if someone was to come up and just ask you, hey, Peter, what types of games do you like? What would your answer be for that, just off the cuff? I can derive enjoyment from most games, but my preferred... Like, if I had to sit down and play one type of game forever, I, I like heavy Euros. Hmm. 
That's what I would answer. That's the type of answer that most people give. It's like, I like worker placements, or I like bluffing games, or I don't like really heavy games or whatever. So I was asked this recently, and this is part of why this has been so much on my mind. Someone asked me, what types of games do you like? And I thought about it for a second, and I was like, honestly, I like player interaction, novel mechanics, games with a light teach, games where you make a small number of decisions, but they have big impacts. That's not how a normal person talks. And then I gave them the normal person answer of these are the genres that I don't like. And most of the time I will be able to enjoy games from any other genre. I would say most of that stuff is covered by uh, lightweight game gateway euros. I would say that uh, as, as a rule, again, nothing's definitive, but like, yeah, light, lightweight euros are generally trying to hit those check those checkboxes. So it's interesting. I don't like many lightweight years. What are some of your favorite games? Sacra Arms, Inhuman Conditions, Inish, X-Wing, Magic the Gathering, Gloomhaven. Gotcha. And what was, what was the list? So again, these aren't necessarily my favorite games, but if someone asks me what I like in general, then I would say I like player interaction. I like novel mechanics, games with a light teach, and games where you make a small number of decisions with big yeah. impacts. <laughs> Because, yeah, very few of the games you listed, I feel, cover that. <laughs> it's true. And, like, that's that's part of the conversation, right? Is it's, like, those are general things for things that I like, but that's not necessarily all that I like. We're going too far. I'm curious to hear some games that you like that actually match those criteria. Because the, the games you listed in those criteria have almost no overlap. And this this is this is what's confusing me. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like saying, what, what movies do you like? Oh, I really like romantic comedies. Oh, what are your favorite movies? I like, uh, you know, Saw, Saw 2, Misery... <laughs> Sack arms for a small number of decisions with big impacts, and I would also put novel mechanics and player interaction. Light teach would be Dixit, Inish, Wavelength, and X-Wing, and Insider. Those are all light, easy to get into games. X-Wing also for the small number of decisions with big impacts. Hey, so you're not looking for a game that does all of these things, because that's how I interpret it. Oh, when no, you no, said no. This list, I thought you wanted a game that did all of those things, and I was like, okay, so like Splendor, for example, I would, I would say pretty firmly covers that uh, that list. I see, I see. Yeah, these are just general attributes that I've noticed. Uh, are, right. Yeah. yeah. So okay, these, yeah. these are markers of my preference, Peter. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I, was, I was trying to imagine games that did all of these things, and, that, and that's why I think Lightweight Euros is, is probably the list that best uh, encapsulate this. It's, it's probably the genre that best encapsulates this list. It's interesting. Lightweight Euros, as a rule, have very simple teachers. They don't have a huge amount of decisions because they're, they're pretty small games. They will, uh, player interaction, you can go either way on. Some some do, mm -hmm. some don't. Yep. And as a rule, like, yeah, for a lightweight Euro to take off, it needs a novel mechanic. Otherwise, it's just like, oh, you made another Splendor clone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd have to look through my list to see which games match up on there that are like light Euros that I actually like. I mean, Aquatico is one that I like for sure, but for the majority of them, that's not really, not really my wheelhouse. I would put an or in there. I like this, <laughs> this, this, or this. Right, Because right. <laughs> I don't think you like all of those because then... Yeah, so I was just reading verbatim what I had texted to this person earlier. So yeah, I, gotcha. I could have rewritten that more cleanly for this. Good call. Right, that explains my confusion for sure. <laughs> the, the goal of this episode is to help people be able to articulate more clearly what types of things that they like and help them find more things that they like and just be able to think about games from a different axis than maybe we often do. And how is this helpful for designers? Well, for designers, I think it's very useful to be able to communicate to people what types of games they're working on for publishers and everything. And it's helpful for them to be able to know that when they're designing the games, like what are their goals with this? When you think about these different aspects, these different axes, you can think about, is this actually where the game needs to land for the target audience that I'm trying to hit? Or is this veering off in different directions? So it lets us assess the games that we're working on and make sure that it's in line with where we want the game to be going. And how is it useful for people who have accidentally clicked through the podcast and don't want to learn about any of that? Oof, tough call. Uh, <laughs> it's a tough crowd, man. <laughs> hopefully they'll just stick around for the fun question and enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, guys, there is fun coming later. Don't worry. It's, it's on its way. <laughs> so right now I want to talk a little bit about how we currently think about genres in terms of like BGG specifically, because the clickbait title for this is Fixing BGG. The idea here is just that BGG currently has some systems set up for categorizing genres and I think that they kind of work, but not. But I don't think they're as robust as they could be. And it's it's a tough call. Like I'll go into the disadvantages of what I'm proposing later on. All right, so what is BGG? BGG is BoardGameGeek.com. It's the best website out there for board games by far. It has reviews. It has user-submitted content. It's like the Wikipedia of board games, basically. Exactly. And crucially for this conversation, it has uh, user-submitted information for games. So for instance, if a game says it plays two to six players, you can see 
how people have rated that. So if people think, yeah, it plays two to six, but it's really best at three to four, then you'll be able to see that sort of information. And that's the type of thing that I care about for this conversation. But they also have a list of genres. The way that they have that set up currently, because it was overhauled, uh, I think, two years ago by Jeff Engelstein and uh, Isaac Schlepp. Friend of the show, Isaac Schlepp. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he writes in very often. Isaac and Jeff wrote a book called The Building Blocks of Tabletop Game Design, an Encyclopedia of Mechanisms. And based off of the principles in that book, they and as well as like other research and stuff, they redid the genres for how BGG labels things, is my understanding of it. Feel free to write in, Isaac, if I mess up any of this stuff. I would be <laughs> happy to be corrected if I misspeak on any of this, but that is my understanding. Currently, BGG has uh, a few primary pieces of information for, for people to be able to submit. They have the time it takes to play, the overall rating, how much you enjoyed the game, and the weight of the game, which is an entire topic in and of itself. But generally speaking, the weight of a game is like how much rules overhead there is, what's the cognitive load, and how long it takes to play is sort of all wrapped up into weight. And what people mean by that really changes dramatically from person to person, which is part of the problem. And then the contribution of the book is in the more pedantic categorizations here. So we have categories. And for categories, uh, I, I pulled out a couple of examples here. I'm pulling up Village Pillage as we speak. See what they have uh, listed for us. <laughs> I'm curious to see how you feel about where they landed on things. Tic-tac-toe, which is a nice simple example here. For categories, we have Abstract Strategy and Children's Game. For Mechanisms, Paper and Pencil and Pattern Building. And under the Family of Games, Category, and in a Row, Animals, Frogs and Toads, Category, combinatorial, <laughs> players, two-player games only, series, game in a tin, toys, transformers, video game theme, Super Mario Bros. Now, that's for possibly the simplest game on BGG. And that's a ton of information that if you haven't played Tic-Tac-Toe, I don't think helps you make a decision as to whether or not this game is for you. Do you agree? I, I would disagree with that. I think the family stuff is uh, sort of arbitrary. I, I don't know what family is based on, so I think we can kind of ignore that. But un- under uh, category, you had abstract strategy in children's game, right? Yeah, yeah, that one is pretty useful. Right. That seems to me like that's what you want to know when you're going to play Tic-Tac-Toe. It's an abstract strategy. There's no theme. It's, it's very dry. It's perfect information. And it's for kids. You're not going to be like super challenged by that. So I think that's perfectly fine. And then under mechanisms, what would you say it had? Paper and pencil and pattern building. Yeah, those are, those are maybe not super vital to know what you're going to play but like pen- pencil paper is useful because you know how you can play it <laughs> mm-hmm. and then yeah the the, fam- the family stuff i think you can pretty much ignore i think that's just a case of it's not that tic-tac-toe is simple it does a lot of stuff it's that everyone knows tic-tac-toe so everyone has an opinion on it so like the wikipedia page for something very very um popular is going to be much longer than something unpopular regardless of how simple or complex it is mm-hmm and then for Katana as another example, I'll, I'll skip over the family because I, I feel that way about all the family stuff. It's, uh, it doesn't really help us with this conversation. Uh, categories are economic and negotiation. Fair enough. Those are the, the two main things for sure. Uh, mechanisms, dice rolling, hexagon grid, income, modular board, network and root building, race, random production, trading and variable setup. Yeah, uh, none of that's offensive, I don't think. I don't think it's, like, unhelpful. To clarify here, I'm not saying, like, oh, this is terrible, burn it to the ground, (laughs) fire Jeff and Isaac. That is not remotely my position. And I think that there is value to being able to compare them together. So you can find dice rolling on Dark Moon, which uses it for hidden information for social deduction, for Risk, where it uses it for combat resolution, Escape the Curse of the Temple, which is a real-time, fast-paced dice rolling game where you just roll as fast as you can. That doesn't help you if you read dice rolling. In combination with the categories, it helps a bit more. It gives you a little bit more context as to what you'll be doing with the dice rolling. But then there's some games too that are just feel quite off the beaten path. So when you have games that sort of defy genres a bit, it gets a lot muddier. So Fog of Love is a two-player role-playing semi-co-op game technically that doesn't have a win condition. And its categories are bluffing, card game, and deduction. And if you've played Fog of Love, that just feels, that feels extremely wrong. That does not feel like what it should be, even though you can technically say that it is correct. Technically, you are trying to deduce what your opponent is playing. Technically, you are playing cards. It does not remotely feel like a card game. And then for mechanisms for that one, communication limits, hand management, role playing, semi-co-op, simulation, simultaneous action selection, storytelling, tug of war. 
Again, when you combine them, it can make a little bit more sense of it, but it's much more useful, I think, as a tool for people who already know about the games or are already like game designers and they're trying to do research for things. That's what this system feels like it was designed for to me. Yeah, I'm going to dive in on dice rolling because that's one that you gave a bunch of examples for. The two uses I can imagine for that is A, hey, I want to put dice in my game. What are weird different ways that games have used dice before? Like, mm-hmm. like you said, there's a whole variety there. And that could almost be a plus of like how, you know, how people use dice in ways that no one's used dice before because that's often the goal of designers. I, I've sort of moved away from that a bit these days. I'm less like, ah, how is, you know, can I do something with a card that no one's done before? I'm looking for more of a holistic approach to how I'm designing a game. But the one thing that all of those games have in common is that moment of tension and reveal. Dark Moon, Mm -hmm. Risk, Escape, and Settlers. Each of them have that moment where before the dice is rolled, you don't know what's going to happen, and you get a little endorphin hit after seeing what the dice have, have done. So while they're all used very differently in a sense, they all evoke a very similar experience despite being very different games. And if that's the experience that you want, I could see that being a useful category. To be more pedantic here, because that's what we're doing today, <laughs> that's all output randomness, right? That's all post-decision randomness. No, not um, not Catan. Uh, true, true. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Whichever type of randomness it is, it's still that like, okay, what's going to happen? Aha! Like the, the closest I can think of is a Dr. Finn game cannot remember the name of it um biblios i think uh, or biblos or something like that Mm -hmm. where you roll the dice at the start of the game and they stay set for the entire game and they never move again and they're literally just like a random seed for the game so i'd be curious if that's listed as as having dice rolling because that's not really a dice rolling game but in every other instance the dice is providing that like oh what's going to happen this is going to determine a thing whether it's like what decision i make or something like that and it does give like with katana especially it does give you that little adrenaline hit it does not have that listed as uh, as a, one of the mechanisms. Yeah. yeah so I, I would, to devil's advocate, if you will, I think that there is some value in as a consumer being like, if you're analytic enough to know that, which I think board gamers, especially those on Board Game Geek, are more likely to be, being like, I like that feeling. Let's see what else can provide that for me. Sort by rank, you know, and and by the top ten. That's a good point. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's a good use case of it. I'll tell you what Village Village is listed as. Oh, I'm excited. Category card game, fantasy humor medieval so not another ones that you had really did um setting which this one has multiple of or tone which this one has with humor and then mechanisms hand management rock paper scissors simultaneous action selection and take that i might have been the one to put these in i actually don't know <laughs> but that's what village pillage is listed as on board game geek the only uh category on that i i have a bit of trouble with is fantasy there's no fantasy in that it's set in medieval europe is that fantastical for some people, that they would put it in the same... Like, if Game of Thrones had no magic or dragons, a lot of people would still... If they enjoy... if you, It's a genre market. If you enjoy fantasy, you're more likely to enjoy stuff set in medieval Europe. Okay. Uh, also, the expansion has a bunch of magic. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, actually, not necessarily a bunch. The next expansion will have a bunch of magic. The first expansion only had a few. I mean, <laughs> what is fantasy? Like, how, how many real-life places have had a turnip-based economy where you can become a kingdom where you collect three relics? Part of it is when we talk about what people go to these things for. So a couple episodes ago, we were talking about Gloomhaven and we we're talking about aesthetics. And I had mentioned it being able to deliver to some degree for dominance. And you laughed and you're like, don't, because I am actively interested in dominance. And I'm telling you, I do not have that aesthetic delivered on when I play this game. And that's how I feel about this. It's like, if I said to you, I really enjoy fantasy games and you gave me that, I do not feel that I would be paid off for that suggestion i don't think i would say yes this is what i was looking for gotcha so what about the game of thrones board game that's a great question because that's essentially just military simulation but set in the game of thrones world with, with other than the white walkers no magic i think it is fantasy not because there's mechanics that specifically state that there's fantastical elements but because it is based on an ip and the reason people go to that ip is because they went to it for the fantasy gotcha yeah it feels like it's begging the question a little bit but i understand what you're saying yeah I'm not trying to cheat on this question. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Uh, if someone asked me if Village Village was fantasy, I would say yes without really hesitating. Really? Um, hmm. Even though it doesn't have magic, it is still... It's not a real universe. <laughs> it's fiction. And it's not just fiction in that, like, we made up the characters. It's fiction in that, like, you know, this combination of characters living together in a village, living on turnips and trying to fight each other for to make a crown out of turnips is just... It's so far outside the realm of reality, I would call it fantasy. 
I mean, there, there's been multiple economies that are based around like seashells and stuff like that, right? So I don't think it's that far removed, but I will concede the point so we can uh, move on because I do understand what you're saying. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. So quickly, I'd like to jump back over aesthetics and consider these as possible ways that we could take um, genres in new directions and different ways to consider them. A quick refresher on the types of aesthetics and what aesthetics means. Aesthetics are basically the type of experience that a game can deliver for someone. An aesthetic would be what I'm trying to get out of a game. It's me saying, I really want to feel X, so I'm looking for games that produce this feeling. The first one is dominance. So this one is being able to say, I beat you. If you ever see kids playing, they really need to be able to show that they are better than other people in order to like feel uh, confident about themselves, that type of thing. They're always comparing themselves to others. So that's sort of the aesthetic that some games uh, are going to deliver on. Next one is sense pleasure. So in our conversation previously, Peter identified that there were different types of sense pleasure. So let's split this up into two primary categories. Do you want to go into those for a sec? Yeah, the, the two that I use is the one that Ian Zhang taught me, which is tactile and object. Tactile is clicky clacky pieces and getting to spin the wheel in, in Zulkin, you know, any, anything where you get to move something and it moves in a satisfying way or hold something and it feels satisfying in your hand. Object is looking at something and it, and it being beautiful or knowing that you own a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. and I think some degree of that could also be in collection games. Like if you think about Pokemon, right? You're collecting all these Pokemon and you're like, ooh, look at this cool Pokemon, it's mine now. I think that that's sort of feeding into that as well. Next up is fantasy slash immersion slash escapism. And the reason why I put it down like that is because I want to make it very clear what this is and what this isn't. This isn't obviously a thematic thing. This is about being able to experience a world other than your own. And so the classic examples of this would be something like stuffed fables, where you play as stuffed animals protecting you know a little kid while they're sleeping and stuff like that. And even something like Scythe. Scythe has a cool world where there's like steampunk robots in the 1900s or whenever it is. Yeah. Challenge. Challenge isn't necessarily about beating another person. It's about overcoming an obstacle. Even if you don't win at the thing, if you were provided with a good challenge and you felt like you could stretch yourself. So these are people who play a lot of really tough solo games or people who enjoy co-ops or even people who just enjoy the puzzle of a Euro. It doesn't necessarily matter where the final scores land. You just care about having played very efficiently and gotten a lot out of the system. Next up is fellowship. And this one is all about coming to games as a way to spend time with people that you care about. So this one, it's less about the game and more about the person. But the reason why some games would deliver on this aesthetic and others wouldn't is because some games encourage the interaction between people. Something like Twister, where you are constantly you know, touching other people and moving around the same space. It, it's about being in that space with those people. Or you know, most party games would fall under this category as well. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm a big uh, Mysterium player. Mm. I re really enjoy Mysterium. But I enjoy being the ghost much more than the other side. And I think it's almost catering to do different experiences because as the ghost, I'm playing for challenge. I want to convey stuff with these very specific restrictions. Uh, Mysterium is a game where one person has to give very specific information to other players only by handing them beautiful artwork cards. You can't say anything. You can't gesture yes or no. All you can do is give them a card or a, a pile of cards. And from that, they have to deduce what you're trying to say to them, basically. Hmm. And so... In Mysterium, as the ghost, I'm like, okay, how can I get this information to this person using these cards? That's a challenge. On the other side of the board, everyone is playing together. You're all playing cooperative. And on the other side of the board, it's a lot of talking about what this card could mean and analyzing it and all that. It's a very, very social experience. So I feel like the ghost is almost not playing a fellowship game. Like they're, they're there and they're interacting, but they are playing challenge. Whereas all the people, I just played this the other day, which is why some of mine, <laughs> all the other people are playing for the fellowship. I totally agree, especially because the ghost isn't allowed to talk to everybody. So it's like you can't enjoy that aesthetic almost. Yeah. Next up is expression. This is the drive to make your mark on the world. This is your drive to be able to show people that you're creative, to do something clever, to do something interesting. And so this is really, really common in all RPGs. This is like the core aesthetic of almost every RPG, I would say. But also, I would say games like Dixit or Junkart, something where you can look at it and say, I built this, I created this clue cleverly, or I built this tower, and now everyone can admire my beautiful tower. Yeah, it's there in a lesser extent in particularly heavy Euros, uh, where you, you build an engine that is unique to you and no one else has built. Oh, let's talk about Cartouche coming out uh, very soon, maybe mm -hmm. on Kickstarter uh, right now, 3rd, uh, 3rd of August it launches. Cartouche is a tile-laying Euro, where you're putting out this stuff, and most tile-laying Euros are about covering up all the space. So at the end of it, 
you are scored on how efficiently you covered up every space. Cartouche is different in that it's not about how you covered up the space. It's about trying to make certain patterns and trying to change certain things. And by the end of it, if you've covered up every space, you've basically done it wrong. Like that's almost the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. And so one of the things I've always liked about Cartouche, uh, which is my design, so I'm a little biased towards it, is that at the end, you look at your board and that is your board that you made and no one has ever made a board that looks exactly like that. And that board tells the story of how you played the game. Where you're like, oh yeah, down here I was doing this and I, I switched over that and, all, and so on. So even though it's a very mechanical game, it's, it's a kind of classic author game in, in a few senses, it still has a, has an element of that expression in a way that's unusual for Euros, especially tile-placing Euros. That's a great example. Any game that people want to take pictures of at the end of it or any time that, you know, even if it was basically multiplayer solitary, right? You basically played your own game and everybody else did. When they want to show you at the end of the game, look at the thing that I did. Either that player is really expression-oriented or the game was encouraging them to be expression-oriented in their playstyle and in those conversations. Yeah. The, the other example I was going to say, which is a bit of a weird one, is, is a very heavy Euro. When you build an engine that is unique to you and you feel very clever for doing it, that's another way of having expressed yourself. So like Feast for Odin is, is an inc incredibly big, complex, heavy game. But at the end of it, if you've got a system where like, haha, every time I get a cow, I can run it through these systems and turn it into seven spaces and cover them up, then you feel... Like you've done something that no one else could have done. It, it, it's a form of expression that I find really interesting. Mm -hmm. Next up is a really interesting one, submission. So this is one where basically you don't want to exert yourself. You want to relax. If you've ever had a conversation with someone or felt this way yourself, that you don't have the energy to even watch a TV show because it would take too much energy to like follow the plot and everything, then you'll understand this aesthetic. This is when... You're tired, you've had a long day, you have a demanding job, and at the end of the long day, you just want to relax and do something that you already know how to do. We spoke about this before, but if you remember our conversation about flow state, where there's on the one axis, you have how challenging the game is, and on the other axis, where your skill is, if you fall below the flow state, if your skill is exceeding the challenge, this can be where you can start to relax. So often you'll have this in, like if you play video games, You'll often have this when you play the game a second or third time. You already know how to do all the things, so it's relaxing. It's a very different experience than the first time you play when you're challenged by it. I actually have a story about this. Um, my friends Kevin and Alicia, who you also know, uh, came over once late at night for some reason, and we were all just completely exhausted. Like They were just fried and done and had no energy, but we wanted to hang out for a bit before crashing and before they went home, whatever. And so, because we were all board gamers, I said, hey, let's play a board game. And I looked at my shelf and I had a bunch of incredibly well-designed games, like some, some of the best games in the world. And they looked at all of those and they're like, we just don't have the capacity for that. We just, we don't want to play it. Like we know they're good. We know we'll have a good time, but we don't want to play any of those. And at the time I was doing development work for Spin Master, who is a, a, the second largest board game company in America. And so they had sent me a copy of Beat the Parents. Have you ever played of or played or heard of? No, uh, Battle of the Sexes. It was. I had, I had both of them. I've heard of that. <laughs> and so it's it's a trivia game where you play as either the man or the woman, and you, if you land on the spot and you're a man, you have to answer a question that only women know the answer to. And if you're a woman, you land on a man's spot, you have to answer a question that only men know the answer to. Without hesitating, they're both like that. That is the game we want to play right now. And I was like, that really? Like I have that there for research because I'm helping with like a sequel or whatever. And they're like, yep, that's what we want to play. And it's exactly what we're talking about. They. They didn't want to challenge. They didn't want to have a risk of feeling stupid because they couldn't understand the game. They didn't want to put the mental energy into it. They just wanted to pull out a game and have the game play them, which that game does. It, it's it's designed for like the complete non-gamer. And so a lot, of, a lot of games that we look at and we're like, that is a bad game, is not trying to do what you are trying to get out of a game necessarily. That's an excellent point, yes. When people just unilaterally say that game is bad, that game is good, that's not a productive conversation to have. The question to ask is, who is this game It's a for? bad conversation to have, not a good conversation. <laughs> I think the more constructive conversation to have is, who is this game for? And is it succeeding in targeting that audience? With submission, this often I find there's a few genres that in particular really lend themselves to this. I would say trick-taking games and deck builders are often games that really appeal to people of this because those are games where you can kind of just focus on your own thing. You don't have to worry too much about rules or complex stuff going on. And you can just play your hand and say, oh yeah, this is a cool thing. Ah, I had Trump, I won this. Oh, I had a good hand, I bought this big thing. That really lends itself to that. In fact, I was recommending back when I was at Bliss that people who are really into deck builders try a game called Nightfall because Nightfall's a really advanced deck builder with a lot of extra stuff going on. What I found was the people who play a lot of deck builders and that's mostly all they play, didn't like it at all. And the people who play a lot of deck builders but also play other games, they liked it a lot. 
And the reason was, was because there's a bunch of extra stuff going on. And what people like about deck builders in general, I theorize, again, we're, this isn't holistic view of humanity, these are broad strokes here, is that they come to deck builders for the core aesthetic of submission, of being able to relax and play out their hand. And when you add on all the strategy, that makes it more appealing to people who traditionally don't like deck builders. Or I, I should be a little bit more clear here. When I say deck builders, I mean the whole game is focused around being a deck builder, like Dominion, Ascension, Star Realms. It's not deck building as one element of a much larger game. Like Mage Knight, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are you familiar with the concept of a zero-player game? Uh, I feel like you mentioned it to me before, but I can't remember now. I, I might have, might not. I've been really fascinated with it over the last few weeks. Um, so it comes from John Conway, who was a mathematician who invented the game of life, hmm. which is a mathematical thing where you take, take a, a grid and you color in some squares and not others, and then you look at that, and based on which ones are colored in, you color in different ones and uncolor some, et cetera, et cetera. And he, he said that he called it a zero player game because after the initial state, there's no input from the player. You just watch it all run out. And since then, it, it's become a thing in video game design specifically about this idea of a zero player game where you just set up the initial conditions and then you let it go. So Loop Hero, I think people are calling it a zero player game. Um, I played a really good one the other day. I'll link to it in the show notes. I cannot remember the name of it, but it was really fascinating. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a little puzzle game. And they're not zero player games, obviously. They require a player, but... They are very submission focused in that you're not making the moment to moment decisions. You're more like someone saying, hey, you go out and do this. And then as they go out and do that, you can just watch it happen. And then they come back and you're like, ah, you did it wrong. Do it this time. And so on and so forth. Looper was my big breakthrough for this aesthetic because I played it and I thought it was a dumpster fire for my own personal preferences. But I knew that it was very popular. And as I was playing it, I realized that exact thing because submission is not an aesthetic that I enjoy at all. It might be the absolute last thing on my list uh, out of all of these. I generally just want to engage my brain for these things. But when I was playing Loop Hero, it really helped me understand for whatever reason that type of mindset where you can just sort of relax, watch the thing play, occasionally input minor decisions. And I mean, that's also the core aesthetic of JRPGs, right? With their turn-based combat system, heavy emphasis on grinding. Parties, yeah. Yeah, like you're not going to win that game by making a lot of really clever decisions in the combat system. You're going to win by putting in a lot of hours and finding the best gear and that type of thing. If you're not familiar with any of these games, imagine Pokemon where instead of choosing each Pokemon's individual attacks, you just assemble the team of Pokemon and then watch the whole battle play out. And then when it's done, you adjust the lineup or you swap out Pokemon or whatever, and then you watch it play out. But you don't actually make any of the individual choices during the battle. Are you familiar with auto chess? No, I've not heard of it. So auto chess is a genre that was a crazy flash in a pan. It went from zero to 100 and then disappeared off the map again. This is a <laughs> video game genre where the idea is you do exactly that. You you build out your team of like creatures or whatever. And then they just fight and they just hit each other back and forth until one side wins and one side doesn't, basically. Oh, I, yeah, I don't know the name, but I've played a few of those games, yeah. yeah. And then, like, between rounds, you upgrade the units, you choose their positions, sometimes depends on the game, that type of thing. I was really fascinated in those games popular because clearly the core of submission seemed on the surface like what you would be doing because you just throw the units and let them do their thing. But they're actually really involved. It takes a lot of thought for all of the popular auto chesses, at least, to be able to build out your teams properly and math out the most efficient routes of spending your resources and the combinations of the units. And I think that they got popular because you can just throw your units out and do it mindlessly and watch them fight. But it allows for players to grow into the layers of strategy, which is... It's like, like a lenticular design. Yeah, yeah, which is something we just talked about. So next up is discovery. And this is something that board games aren't super great at, but... The idea of discovery is surprise, basically, the, the excitement. Dice games in general could like scratch this itch a tiny bit, but it's more about being able to explore something, finding new novel things. We've talked before, legacy games or Seventh Continent or campaign games, things that have unlockable things in the box, that's really going to deliver on this aesthetic. You can also hit this if you do a game that has a lot of content that combos in interesting ways. So like if I've never seen piece number four and piece number 12 together, and as I'm playing, I'm like, wait a second, <gasps> I can use the fact that this one has, you know, infinite damage and this one has infinite redirection of damage to attack myself and, and bounce it off. We might have discussed that in the past, actually, it's, it's sounding familiar, but Sentinel Tactics is the game I always go to. It's a game by um, Creator of the Games, and it was not a very good product. It was very hard to get into. The rulebook wasn't super clear. But once you got past that barrier, once you would played five games, it was 
incredible for discovery and combos and tactics and i had a really good time it was, it was too dense to get into and they were, were going to remake it i think they ended up canceling the remake in the end it can be done in board games it's tricky i think most people who have that itch they scratch it by playing a lot of different board games last up is narrative slash drama so this one's pretty self-explanatory people like stories and people who are particularly drawn to this aesthetic are going to want narrative in their games narrative focused examples that we've mentioned before kingdom death monster dead of winter these are games that generate narratives yeah generating narratives is better for games as a medium but we'll go into that later some that don't generate it would be chronicles of crime time stories where they just give you the story Mm -hmm. you play through it and then you're basically done with that module yeah so that's aesthetics and the way that i i could easily imagine this working is if the aesthetics were listed and clearly explained because this isn't like a common thing people are thinking about but you could just vote on it the same way that you could vote on rating so like does this one satisfy dominance rate one to five stars or whatever and then you can see just like you would see the weight of the game or the rating of the game you could say oh this is a game that has a lot of expression in it and i think that's an easier thing for people to parse an easier thing for people to understand than what we currently use in general and not just in board games but in general yeah i think that that could the only issue with it is that it requires a level of self-awareness i think (laughs) Um, which I, I suppose the current categories and mechanisms that they currently have do. I think the best part of Board Game Geek is the like games like this, which I think is, is pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. The challenge, like you said, is getting people on board with the system. But I think that this system would be really, really valuable for people, even just gamers in general, reading through or listening to this episode, being able to understand and articulate their own enjoyment. Because... A lot of people, they just aren't able to articulate these things. It's very difficult to be able to talk about these concepts before someone gives you the language to communicate. Are you familiar with the network effect? No. So the network effect is huge in uh, in tech, especially. So imagine if Facebook 2 came up and you're like, oh, I like Facebook. I'm going to join Facebook 2. And you join and there's only, you know, no one you know is on there. You're not going to spend any time on that website. Whereas Facebook already has everyone you know. So let's pretend that you like everyone you know. You're more likely to spend time on that website. So the network effect is basically when something has got enough of a network for it to continue to kind of self-propagate and grow from that. Mm. And so I I think that that's the obstacle with a lot of these ideas is that like if you could get a thousand gamers to rate their thousand favorite games on these metrics, bam, you've got enough of a database then that the network effect would potentially grow that and grow that and grow that and grow that. But until you have that, you, you're kind of stuck at, stuck on the runway. Mm-hmm. I could see long-term like algorithmically being able to generate really, really accurate suggestions for games based off of aesthetics combined with the other factors that we're talking about here. Right, you, you need that initial data yes. set. That's, that's the big problem with um, a lot of algorithmic stuff. Yep, Yeah. I'm, I'm not disagreeing at all. I, I'm not saying that this is necessarily practical. Clickbait title aside, I think these are more like theory things to discuss. Yeah, potential alternatives, yeah. Mm -hmm. So part of the problem, obviously, with uh, anything to update BG is that they have... 60,000 games so mm-hmm. <laughs> anytime you update update a system with 60,000 games you're also committing to updating the content for 60,000 games and I think Isaac and Jeff got a bit of backlash about that when they were like hey we're doing this and uh and, and they implemented it because they had some good stuff in there but there was a lot of like well now most of the games don't fit these categories and like who's going to go through and update those so in defense of bgg they're in a rough position where they are so big and they have so much valuable content that it would be like if wikipedia was like you know what we're going to have every page have a two column approach where the left column does this the right column does this cool that's a nice idea but it's going to take seven years to implement or changing america to the metric system it would be better but there's a word for it. I can't remember the, the transfer cost or something like that is so high that it's just never going to be worth it. Even having like different scales for weight instead of just having weight be a really amorphous thing that really means like three things. If you had rules overhead, cognitive load and length as three separate categories going through and just removing that or trying to like backport that would be a nightmare. And even if you leave it to users, well, now you just have all these blank spaces now and you just essentially lost a lot of information. Right. Yeah. It'd be a step backwards, which is not what you want your improvement to do. I can only imagine how much work they went through when they (laughs) implemented the change to begin with, which, by the way, is a huge improvement over what was there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's look at the two games we've been talking about, Tic-Tac-Toe and Cartouche, under those aesthetics. So uh, Tic-Tac-Toe, run me through the aesthetics and how they apply to Tic-Tac-Toe. Tic-tac-toe definitely has the dominance and competition. Being their person feels good. 
And again, this is like for the target audience, right? So like for kids, they don't know how tic-tac-toe works. They don't know that the game is over before it begins. When they're playing, it's like, yeah, I beat you. That's the rush. I think that there is some degree of sense pleasure in being able to like draw things yourself, but that's that's really minor. It's pretty one. low, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, there's no fantasy there. For kids, it is challenging as they like start to learn corner piece is good. Oh, wait, game broken. <laughs> you know, like the, <laughs> climbing those heuristic trees. There is a bit of that for them. Mostly, I think it is about fellowship. It's about like, eh, we're, we're bored. We need something to do. We're, we're stuck in class. And the teacher told us to entertain ourselves. For the minutes. game itself doesn't really encourage that. That's incidental. That's just because everyone knows it. True, true. That's a good call. Especially by being a two player game, it, it <laughs> almost excludes <laughs> fellowship. There's expression only in that you can do something fancy with how you draw it, but not delivering. <laughs> Definitely yeah. not hitting those notes. Submission. I do not imagine there's ever going to be people who have figured out tic-tac-toe and wish to continue playing it. I, yeah. I that. <laughs> <laughs> there's essentially zero discovery to be had in the game. I was going to say there, there is discovery, but it's just got a very, very low ceiling. Like, well, the, the discovery is like climbing the heuristic tree, like the, the mastery, the getting better. And to me, that falls more under challenge and dominance than it does actually discovering new features. Yeah, right? that, that's fair. Yeah. And then narrative and drama, obviously zilch, unless you have a great story about the circles overtaking the squares. So let, let's look at Cartouche coming to Kickstarter August 3rd, <laughs> sponsor of the mm-hmm. podcast in a sense. How does Cartouche mention these? And, and be honest, I'm not going to be hurt if you're like, it's garbage at all of them. I'll probably get you to cut it, but I won't be hurt. <laughs> <laughs> cartouche it great (laughs) 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 it's really a piece of excellent work peter (laughs) there's definitely dominance and competition check marked off there i think the big thing that cartouche does because a lot of these games that are more euro we can feel sort of heads down it doesn't quite satisfy the dominance if you yeah do you you want to briefly do a summary of cartouche's uh, mechanisms good call good call yes because literally no one can have played that because it's not out yet (laughs) (laughs) good call in cartouche is a polyomino game aka you take tetris pieces and you place them on board you're going to be drafting each round you're going to be drafting pieces or goals and the goals are what you use the pieces for and the pieces will go on your own personal mural and so when you've drafted one of those tiles maybe you're trying to touch it to symbols that are already on the board in order to score tokens and complete goals that require tokens or you can create shapes that are required or certain combinations of different symbols on the board within sections so you create a section with a snake and an alligator And now that you've created that window around them, you've completed that story. And so it's all about creating these patterns and different objectives with your tiles, completing the achievements, and then those achievements will complete bigger achievements down the line and get you bonuses as you complete them. How'd I do? Yeah, so the the one thing that's about to be relevant is that uh, if if you complete, say, three of those token goals... Oh, did you already say that? I, I did say if you complete them, they'll contribute to the other one, yeah. Right, and, and that, that's a race. That's a little race between the players. So yes. the first person to complete three is going to get their token up first and just get a few more points. That's where most of the dominance in this game comes from. Like You're not really crushing your opponents with, with your pieces or anything like that, but if you can beat them to that, then you're kind of watching everyone else and being like, oh, they're about to get that, so I want, I want to beat them to it, and that'll get me three more points. That's the big note, is winning a game doesn't mean that the game has dominance as a core aesthetic basically the more the game reinforces that the more the game is about the beating that is going to make the game more deliver on the aesthetic the more small fronts you can beat your opponent on yeah so like in in a combat game then it's it's going to be like we had a fight and i won that fight and we had this fight and i won that fight we had this fight and i won that fight and even if i lose the game i'm still checking that dominance box every time we have a little fight and I, i get to be the victor Whereas most Euros, I just sort of like do your own thing until the very end and then see who got the most points overall. Exactly. And so for Cartouche in particular, because you're constantly checking that board, oh, you took that spot before I got there. I was going to do that next round. It, it checks off the dominance box a lot more than if all these things were somehow checked at the end of the game because you're not getting those little hits throughout and then the final whammy of did you win yeah. or did you lose. Or, or if you just got three points for doing it, regardless of if you're first, second or third. Yeah, absolutely. Next is sense pleasure. So there's two sense pleasures. There's the objective one that you can visualize and there's the one that you can touch tactilely. Now, I haven't played the physical prototype 
because we don't have it yet. <laughs> but as with most of our games, the uh, tactile sense pleasure of them is quite nice. We do make the components as high quality as we can. So I expect that will deliver on there. But the cartoony, colorful, bright, vibrant hieroglyphics, those definitely deliver. I think you're missing one thing that this game does quote unquote worse than a lot of tile lane games. And I, I mentioned earlier that tile lane games are about completely filling up the space. And that often involves like, ah, I'm going to click this into that spot. And that's a tactile mm. sensation. That, that That's part of what the tactility is being like, ah, yes. And this fits in here. This fits in here. This one is much more about spreading out. So I think it's still there. And like you're, you're making, you're doing a puzzle, basically. You're doing a physical puzzle. Yeah. So that, that's a better way of saying it. So when you're completing a jigsaw puzzle, there's a lot of tactility there because you're, you're fitting the thing into the thing and it fits just right. And that feels so good. In patchwork, when you get the bit that goes in and covers up the last thing, that, that's very tactile. So this one actually has, in a sense, a little less tactility than a lot of other tile lane games. Like, tile lane games are inherently going to be more tactile than non-tile lane games most of the time. But uh, it, it's interesting thinking about... like that. That's one of the real satisfying things about patchwork and stuff like that, is that you get to complete a little puzzle on your board. And you do still get to complete the puzzle. They just don't necessarily slot in in the exact way that traditional ones do. It's about putting the piece such that it completes whatever you're working on, but it might not necessarily be like creating the perfect cube and human brains love puzzles and like completing things. So that's a very good catch. In terms of the visual though, it's fantastic. And when you've got the whole thing built out with all these different hieroglyphics in different positions, especially the way that we've got the tiles built out, Tina did a fantastic job with the art and each one of the tiles has a slightly different positioning of them to make them work just right. And so when you have all those laid out, it just looks fantastic. Just the other day when we were building out the TTS prototype, <laughs> we just gushed over and over again about yeah. how good it looked once they were on the table. It sounds like a sales pitch, but yeah, AJ and I had a meeting a few days ago. Where we were literally just like, oh, this looks so good for like five minutes straight. It was really lovely. It's nice making pretty things. Next up is challenge. And I think it definitely delivers on challenge. Being able to complete the puzzle of Cartouche, of completing these achievements, you constantly have little challenges and they feed into bigger challenges that you're trying to complete. As soon as you complete one of those, you immediately get the feedback, you get the reward of having completed the thing, and then you get a bonus immediately. And if you complete enough of the same things, then you get the further bonus of achievement board where everyone's competing on. It's just like feedback on top of feedback telling you, yes, you completed that challenge that we gave you and you did a good job and here's your reward for it. That was a big focus for us. I I like challenge games. That's That's probably my number one aesthetic. Next up is Fellowship, and I think this is where it falls pretty flat. Yeah, I was going to say, this, this is <laughs> probably the weakest, maybe other than Submission. It's it's very much a heads-down, play-your-own-game kind of game. Mm-hmm. Expression, as we talked about before, being able to look at your board at the end of it and say, like, these are all the cool things that I did. Here's how I built towards this objective. Here's how I made this thing work. And seeing the beautiful tiles laid out like that, that does reinforce the expression of the player, to a degree at least. It's not going to be the best on this aesthetic, but it definitely delivers on it enough to scratch that itch, I think. Yeah. Submission, not remotely close. Like, (laughs) I guess if someone is just a stone-cold master at Tetris and those types of (laughs) themes, then maybe they could get into a zen state where they're just laying down stuff and get into the rhythm of it. I could see someone who plays this game a ton, 50 to 100 times, get into that flow state where they can do that but the game does not encourage that in any way yeah i feel like challenges and submission are almost a uh, a binary yeah yeah that's a good that's a good note then discovery so there is an expansion that we'll have available for it that really does make you play in a different way do you kind of want to go into that one a little bit yeah so we've done two things to kind of try to scratch that discovery itch not consciously at the time but looking back i can see uh, that's what we're doing. So uh, Discovery is another actually really big one for me. I, I will always try to put in my games as much content as I can that combos in different ways so that when you play it for the 50th time, you're like, oh, Challenge and Discovery, I would say, are probably my top two aesthetics if I had to, if I had to rank them. Mm-hmm. And so for this one, we've done two things. One is, as AJ mentioned, an expansion called the Pyramid Expansion. And the, the three types of goals are normally, you know, get these tokens, build these chambers, and create these rivers across the board. Pyramid is make a specific kind of structure. So like make something that looks like this, make this kind of shape. And the discovery comes not only from like learning those and getting the expansion, but also from like trying to do that while, I guess that's more challenge. The challenge of like trying to do that while also trying to hit your other goals efficiently. There's a nice little um, nice little symbiosis there. But for me, the big one is that on the backside of the player's boards, I think you've only played the normal type where you have to start from the bottom of the grid and build up. On the flip side, you have to start from the middle. There's just a single square and all your pieces originally have to touch that square and then you build out. 
And I would say this one is Discovery because it really makes you think about the game very, very differently. Like you can't just be like, ah, there's a cat on the left and a snake on the right. So I'll, if I've got a cat thing, I'll go on the left. It's like, okay, I need to build out and into the corner and all this kind of thing. So those two aspects are sort of how we tried to scratch that Discovery itch. And again, like it's not going to absolutely drive it home, right? It's, this isn't a game that's built for Discovery, but those are right. very clever ways of giving players something towards that. And I think that what you said when you were talking about the combos earlier, that's exactly right. Whenever you, the more combinations that you can possibly have of different components in the game, the more variety there is for players. To Six significant combinations. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this one gives me plus one. Oh, this one gives me plus two. <laughs> <laughs> that's something that I'm always, always, always trying to think about in my games. It, it, it could be really hard if you've got a really tight system, but I, I always want it in there. A narrative slash drama. There is a story that goes in that builds in the game. And particularly with the AI, there's a story that is built around what's happening in it. Yeah, I, I would call it a framing. I don't, I don't think this is a game that anyone who's heavily into narrative <laughs> yeah. is going gonna, is gonna to be like, yes, finally, the new chapter of the cartoon story has come out. It, it's a framework yes. for the interesting mechanisms. Narrative and drama is already the hardest to do well aesthetic in board games, I think. And there's precious few examples of ones that have done it well. Yeah, double digits at best. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So that's Cartouche. <laughs> on Kickstarter, August 3rd. Uh, although we have the TTS mod available now. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can play it. You can just play it for free right now. <laughs> Do it. It's a fun game. <laughs> it is. I like it. And I don't even like those types of games normally. And I'm awful at it. I am so bad. Yeah, you are very, very bad at this <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going to wrap up. So first, we're going to give you a teaser for next episode. Our teaser is that we're going to have our first ever guest appearance. Ooh. wonder who it's going to be. Is it me? No. In oh. fact, you're not allowed to come. Is it you? <laughs> I'm not a guest, but I'll be there. <laughs> It'd be kind of weird if both of us weren't there, just the guest. <laughs> Maybe I could be your guest and you could be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And our fun question is, Peter, if your life depended on winning this game, what game would you choose to play? What is the game that you're the best at? Like published game? Yes, published game. Other, yeah, I, I'm always looking for those loopholes. I'm like, oh, the game of being, being Peter C. Hayward, done, I win. I've got a list of questions where I've like worded them really carefully so you can't have <laughs> loopholes. And then I've got a couple that are just really open-ended and sometimes I'm going to give you a treat. <laughs> I, uh, I got you into Taskmaster because it's amazing. And mm. uh, you, you can see <laughs> you can see that evolution as the show goes on. They used to be very broad and then they're like, okay, we gotta we got to not let people just do whatever they want every single time. What game would I pick? Published game. Oh, that's such a good question. Thank you. The thing is, I'm not <laughs> I'm not that good at many games. I'm not bad at games. I'd probably pick Istanbul. Hmm. I'm much, much, much better at learning a new game than I am at mastering an existing game. So I've played dozens and dozens of Feast for Odin, but I still often lose to relatively new players because I've never mastered like I play that game for the discovery. I'm like, oh, how does this work with this, with this? Oh, it didn't work. Istanbul has a very limited kind of set of things that it can change. And I'm at the point of having seen, I've, I've gone to every tile a thousand times and I've played every card a thousand times. Uh, I showed you Istanbul since, since our last um, discussion of it and you played it. Do you want to describe how Istanbul works? Certainly. It's adjacent to worker movement, as in you have a worker and then you move them and the place that they land on, you'll get the action. But the way that this one differs from that is you don't have a single worker that's sitting there. You have a bunch of assistants. So you've got a stack of these tiles and on your turn, you're going to move and you either move and collect an assistant, which means you pick one back up into your stack and you take the action or you drop off an assistant in that space to again, take that action or you just do nothing and waste your turn, which I generally recommend not doing. <laughs> it's an economic game. There's more to it than that. But the core mechanic that you need to care about is that central mechanic of picking up and leaving workers. So you need to be careful where you leave them so you can create a path to get around to where you actually want to go. Make sure you're not leaving a worker somewhere that you don't want to have to go back to. And I love this game. This is my favorite game of all time. I play it a lot. It's excellent. AJ and I played it and I didn't tell you I was doing this because I didn't really feel bad, but I played extraordinarily inefficiently because I've played <laughs> this game so much that I can generally win within like 12 turns or something like that. So Istanbul is definitely the game that I would, I would play to, to win. Well, joke's on you, Peter, because the only reason you won is because I assumed that you're going to make wise moves, and I kept playing around those, and you kept doing <laughs> off-the-wall weird things. Otherwise, I would have crushed you. <laughs> no, Peter was doing something else the entire time. When it was his turn, it would take him like five seconds, 
and when it came back to me it'd be like five minutes per move. yeah I, I i love that game i i could play that game forever i've mostly played assemble digitally and i just got the physical big box which has expansions that i've never played i'm so excited to because they're not available digitally what about you what game would you play if your if your wife depended on it i've got two answers because i'm cheating because it's my question i can do whatever i want i'm having fun <laughs> so my first answer i've referenced feria a few episodes back feria in its original beta state i was insane at my win record at the end i had like 50 wins and two losses but that game doesn't exist anymore yeah no, not allowed Otherwise, I would have chosen that time you killed me because I have gotten it's a, it's an abstract strategy, so it's perfect information, and I've played that thousands of times more than any other human because <laughs> I've worked on it for years and then helped with the development. Yeah. So my real answer is Descent First Edition, which I have played the mess out of. The first day that I got it, I played it twenty four hours straight. <laughs> is it, isn't that a cop? It's a one versus many, and I'm the one. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> I was going to say, if it's a co-op, then I, I'll pick like the world's easiest co-op that you can <laughs> barely ever lose. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever lost a game of Descent as the Overlord, as the one fighting against the heroes. I've lost a couple times as the heroes, but I just destroy as the Overlord. Okay, I've only played it once or twice. I thought as the Overlord, you weren't meant to be winning. You were meant to be like doing a GM kind of thing. That's not what the rules say. The rules say that there's a winner and a loser. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I've, I've only been taught it. Let's, let's get some little self-promotion here. Which of the Jelly Bean games would you pick? That I'm the best at? Oh, good question. I would pick Village Village. I've, I've played so much Village Village that nowadays I play uh, on hard mode and still kind of win. Hmm. I'm pretty bad at most of Jelly Bean games. I <laughs> think Goblin Teeth, but that game has a oh, lot of luck, so game. I'd probably die. <laughs> what about uh, of, of Coffee Bean as well, like including unpublished stuff? Uh, none of coffee bean games. I'm I'm way worse at coffee bean than at jelly bean. <laughs> cool. Well, that wraps up our episode on thinking about genres and thinking about thinking about thinking about games. Really, it's sort of a meta thinking episode. I've been Peter C. Hayward. I've been AJ Brandon. And we'll never be again. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. Cool. I think that was good.